Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Perhaps you were weird. Now, wait, I know many of you may be thinking, well, that's a great statement to start off the introduction to this episode with. Well, my friends, it turns out that if perhaps you are weird, you raised in a society that is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. If so, you're rather psychologically peculiar. That is according to my guest today, Joseph Heinrich. The weirdest people in the world, how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. Because as it turns out, unlike much of the world today and most people who have ever lived, weird people are highly individualistic, self-obsessed, control-orientated, non-conformatist and analytical. They focus on themselves, their attributes, accomplishments, and aspirations over their relationships and social roles. Why is that? Well, that's what we dive into during this conversation. And this conversation with Joseph, I really had my work cut out for me. Now, Joseph is a really, really intelligent uh, individual, and I really did enjoy trying to formulate questions in the moment that were spinning around in my mind uh, because there's so much to actually cover because Dr. Joseph Heinrich is actually the Professor of Biological Anthropology and Professor of Human Evolutionary Biology, um, I believe, of Harvard University. His research focuses on evolutionary approaches to psychology, decision-making, and culture, and includes topics uh, related to cultural learning, cultural evolution, cultural gene, co-evolution, which we do dive into, and he tries to explain that for me in this conversation, human sociality, prestige, leadership, large-scale cooperation, religion, which we also touch on during this conversation, which I found very, very fascinating, and the emergence of complex human institutions. And he has many, many other interests as well, not just those that I listed out, none including uh, his book that came out 
September 8th, 2020, the weirdest people in the world. Why in the world would we say that some people are weird compared to maybe some others that aren't? And how has evolution over time played a role in that psychologically distinct area? I found this conversation to be riveting enjoyable and somewhat challenging for myself in in terms of trying to ask the kinds of questions that I know that you guys are going to benefit from. So if it sounds like I am searching for a question based around a response that he has given me, that's the reason (laughs) because I'm trying my best in the moment to um, think about deep and meaningful questions that I could possibly ask and my curiosity was running wild. And Joseph was very, very kind in that uh, as well and and very understanding at that too. So my friends, if you do get something from this, please share it around to your friends and family. Let everyone know about this one. Also, don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, is now available wherever books are sold. Links for that are in the show notes as well. You can also get uh, Joseph Heinrich's book, The Weirdest People in the World, if you want. Uh, links for that will be in the show notes below too. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Joseph Heinrich. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Jay. Great to have you, my friend. There's a lot of topics of that we can dive into, lots of things that you've studied and a lot of areas of interest for myself, actually, in trying to figure out how humans work, interact, behave, you name it. I'm fascinated by this, mainly because I'm trying to figure out how I do things properly and how that all came about. But before we dive into that, my very first question for you is, what does success look like for you? Uh, is this a personal question or are you talking about like within the context of the theories? Can be theory related, can be personal, whatever you feel comfortable with. Uh, well, so, life. I mean, within the context of uh, cultural evolutionary theory, we think about the success of ideas as being uh, their propensity to transmit, you know, the kind of interface between people's cognition and features of the environments. Uh, and, and the shape of the idea that causes them to spread or to not spread. So we can just uh, define the success of an idea that way. You can also kind of reapproach things from the point of view of an individual. So there's a lot of work on cultural learning about how individuals use cues of success to figure out who to attend to. Uh, and there you're, you know, something like prestige, which is, you know, people's judgments about others' um, relative worth as a model, as somebody to learn from. And then that causes their ideas to to spread or more likely to spread. Right. So interesting. Uh, So that's with the cultural side of things. And I'm curious, as like, as a species, as a human race, we often have this sort of one view or one approach to success, right? Where did that actually come from in your research? Have you looked into that often or got no clue? Well, uh, I mean... I mean, there's quite a bit of variation across societies in what constitutes success. I mean, in general, success is related to health and offspring, and there's kind of a bunch of things that often crop up as markers of success across societies, wealth, obviously, um, and being being well thought of and, and uh, 
having the esteem of your of others is also, well, I mean, I think that's a universal actually. Uh, so yeah, so a lot of variation there, but but some some strong patterns, some evidence of human nature. Yeah. What got you interested in studying all these topics and areas of humans and human behavior? Well, I, I when I first uh, went into the field of anthropology and started pursuing my PhD, I um, I started doing field work, and back then I had very much an applied bent, and so I was interested in what the the way the ways in which we could use we could learn from people and and then improve the material conditions of life. So you know what economists think of as economic development, although I had a much broader and kind of less material view of that. And uh, but what I found, I was really dissatisfied with the available theories and ideas and ways of explaining things that I was finding within anthropology. And I started to cast a broader net, uh, and I got really interested in in using evolutionary theory to think about humans and human nature and cultural diversity. Uh, and then I began to draw on a lot of different disciplines, including economics and psychology, to try to map out and fill in the this the framework that comes out of thinking of humans as a cultural species. Cultural evolution, I'm curious about. How have we as a society in Western world compared to, say, other countries and other cultures, how have we developed over time? Has it been sort of a good development over time? And what has sort of constituted that level of development over the course of that time, if that question makes sense? Well, I mean... I mean, one angle on that kind of question is the the angle that I take in the weirdest people in the world. So uh, that's that's the book, my book. Um, and what we found when we looked across human societies, this is working with two social psychologists, Steve Hine and Arnon Zion, back in 2010. We published a paper in which we argued that not only is there interesting and important psychological variation around the world, but that the populations most commonly studied by psychologists and economists were psychologically unusual. And um, so more variation than most researchers had even suspected. And the population they were studying was unusual, unusual in a global perspective. And the task I set out on after that was to try to explain some of this variation we were seeing across different societies. So I looked at what I, what I now think of as a unique cultural evolutionary trajectory taken by Western European societies that led to this emphasis on individualism, this inclination towards analytic thinking, this tendency to trust strangers, the weakness and smallness of families, uh, relatively little loyalty, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so the book is an effort to explain that variation. What culture did you find was the most weird or the most interesting to study? Well, those are two different questions. I tend to like to study um, relatively small-scale societies because I find I learn the most in those places. So I've done field work in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, rural Chile, and uh, South Pacific. Uh, and all of those projects have been really illuminating for me as a researcher. Um, but in terms of the kind of psychological variation we've seen, the case we made back in 2010 was that Americans are probably, probably the weirdest, especially like upper-income elite Americans. So the kinds of people that found themselves in psychological studies are the most unusual. Does decision-making play any factor in our, or the American culture being the weirdest? Well, I mean, there's lots of aspects of psychology that influence decision-making. So for example, if people are familiar with 
all these biases that uh, psychologists and economists have found in human decision-making, almost all of those are culturally variable. And many of them are at extremes in, in Americans. So something like overconfidence bias. Americans are the most overconfident people in the world. Um, individualistic thinking, Americans are the most individualistic, with Australians and Brits uh, not too far behind. <laughs> Good old Australians and Brits. <laughs> I'm interested in, so when we do end up making a decision, so comparing it to, say, a different culture, let's go with the culture of Chile, for example. The cultural side of things, I'm, I'm getting to the question, just one second. I'm forming it in my head as, as we speak. Um, how do we or how have we gone about over the course of our evolution with the advent of technology, with the advent of new things, how has our decision-making changed over that course of time and how much of it or what in particular with the culture like what elements within the culture has constituted that level of change? Does that make sense at all? I think so. I mean, I can start to answer and you can, you can let me know whether um, I'm hitting the areas that you have in mind, but I mean, you can look at anything, you can look at emotions, you can look at motivations, you can look at the ways in which people process information, what they attend to. Uh, and we find variation across societies and all of those things. And the way to think about it is that people's, minds are adapting and molding themselves ontogenetically and culturally to uh, the worlds they have to confront. So one of the big things that seems to be really important is the organization of the family. Some societies have these dense, tight kinship networks where minds have to evolve to adapt to a world where you're born into a bunch of existing relationships. You have lots of roles and responsibilities. You have to avoid losing face or experiencing shame. If you do do something shameful, your entire family feels that it actually reverberates out through your kinship network. And so that causes you to attend to different things and make decisions in different ways than if you live in a more individualistic societies where we tend to think of people as atoms. They have uh, well-defined personalities because they're trying to set themselves apart from everybody else, establish their uniqueness because they're in a marketplace of relationships. They don't have a lot of pre-built relationships that come with being born uh, in a particular social network. So these things have all shaped some of this variation in psychology and shape decision-making in all kinds of ways. Do you think that culturally and societally, our decision-making has become better or worse over time? Well, I mean, in some ways, I think you could uh, say that it's become better, uh, although it causes us to miss things. Uh, and it depends which society you're talking about. So if you're talking about Western societies, um, you know, the process that I describe in the weirdest people in the world, people have become more analytical. And when you're an analytical thinker, you tend to focus on the parts when you want to solve a problem. You typically assign properties to those parts. And then the properties are supposed to help you explain the behavior of the system. So in physics, you assign particles properties. It could be charge. It could be spin. It could be gravity. And then you try to explain the behavior of the system. If you're a psychologist, you assign people personalities. And it's the interaction of those personalities that explain things. But if you were to do this as a holistic thinker, you would look at the relationships between individuals. So if, if two individuals are having a bad interaction, uh, a personality psychologist might, you know, describe one of them as, you know, um, narcissistic or angry or something like that. Whereas uh, 
uh, a holistic thinker would say, well, there's a problem with the relationship between those two individuals. It's not a general property of that person that they're angry. These are just basic inclinations. Of course, you can have more complex explanations. So uh, analytic thinking is good for solving some types of problems and holistic thinking is good at solving other types. The best groups actually have a mix of analytic and holistic dis- uh, decision makers. So you really, ideally you want a diversity in your sort of, you know, say innovation teams or something like that. But the extreme focus on individualistic thinking, probably I argue, I mean, I don't have any, I don't have any rock solid evidence on this, but if you look at the emergence of science uh, beginning in the late middle ages, and the early modern period, it looks super analytic. And it's clear that those guys are analytic thinkers and a lot of the things they're focusing on look like analytic thinking. A notion like human rights, now to move to a different domain politically, most people, at least at least around here in Cambridge uh, or in, in Boston, uh, really like human rights. We think they're a good thing as we wanna promote them. But it's a very strange idea in lots of places because it gives everyone a property. So you know, I might think I have a right to healthcare and so then we make laws based on the fact that we think every individual is endowed with a right to health care. That's a completely made up thing. Um, you know, all, all these kind of rights, right to property and life like John Locke um, just made up a thing. But we assign people disposition and then we make we build systems around that. Um, so potentially useful, but also has shortcomings and can lead to blind spots. I mean, the one place where we might have done better would be the evolution of epistemology. So for lots of human history, we took things as evidence like, um, you know, we, you know, for, for thousands of years, Chinese emperors and, and lots of other political leaders would use uh, astronomical information or they might rely on dream evidence or they might rely on, you know, various forms of divination done by experts. They might pay uh, individuals to, to make rain. They paid rainmakers, for example, in China for thousands of years. But we gradually began to understand enough about what constitutes good evidence and, and a good argument that we can that we are better at solving some problems than, than we used to be because of that. So the evolution of epistemology and ontology has has made us better at solving some problems. Are people born more holistic thinkers or more analytical thinkers, you think, or is is this all taught? Um well, that's a good question. Uh, I think they're they're more inclined to be holistic thinkers, yeah. uh, and then we're pushed towards either. Well, we're born somewhere in the middle, probably with a holistic bent, and then some societies push people to make them more holistic, and other societies push them to make them more analytic, making the the adult forms further apart than the kid forms. So we need, I guess, a, a balance of both in order to be an effective leader one that actually brings about good positive change in society is that correct well i mean i'm just thinking about what we know from uh psychological studies of what's called collective intelligence yeah. and so you know if you're a, a political leader you know you would be wise to surround yourself with a cabinet that would inc- at least include some holistic thinkers or advisors that would include some holistic thinkers as well as you know some really good analytic thinkers so that's the idea so we're going to lean more back towards what we were born with almost with the holistic side of things. Yeah. Or, or even go past it. Right. Cause you know, uh, you can socialize and enculturate people to be even more holistic than they would have been when they were young. When you say holistic, what does that constitute? Like what so that you- constitutes um, recognizing, for example, uh, analytic thinkers are biased to see trends as going in straight lines. Yep. So if you show them a trend, they're going to tend to think that trend continues. Whereas holistic thinkers 
tend to think in circles and cycles. And so, you know, whatever goes up must come down. Same things, you know, if you, this should affect the stock market as well. Um, so that's the idea. And that's, so you want to have, and also they tend to look at the background. They think about relationships. It even affects perception. So uh, famously, Dick Nesbitt and his colleagues, he's a psychologist at the University of Michigan, showed people scenes and they did eye tracking. So they could see everywhere on the screen the person was tracking and how long they focused on it. And analytic thinkers, uh, Americans in this case, tended to focus narrowly on a, on the few of the main objects in the, for, in the foreground, whereas more holistic thinkers would focus on the background and look more around it. And this then uh, is consistent with the memory tests that were done after. So uh, the holistic thinkers remembered more things from the scene than the analytic thinkers who just tended to remember the stuff in the foreground. Okay. And how would we go about teaching this? Is it more of a sort of a home-based way of practice? Well, I mean, if I was, I mean, one approach, which I don't know if anybody has tried, would be you could create games yep. in which, so children's games. So, you know, one funny thing is, so we, we, a lot of, a lot of stuff with children's games and books and stuff, uh, uh, you know, at least in the, in the U.S. is focused on shape and color. And we're always teaching kids shape and color and matching and similarity and stuff like that. Uh, and that's all very analytically oriented. But you could have kids guessing functional relationships and uh, remembering the background could be a game instead of, you know, if you do a matching game or a memory game, it's, so there's only one thing on the card. What if you put three things on the card or something like that or something in the background? So you could try. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Clean it up. Yeah. And... I'm curious about the area of, so you looked into the idea of leadership and I guess being a, a holistical and analytical thinker in many respects would constitute being a more effective leader in society. And are there any other elements that you think that if we looked at psychology as a whole and the way humans behave and interact socially and that sort of thing, what are some other elements you've discovered that makes people better leaders? Well, I mean, the main thing I've worked on that's relevant to that question is this idea that humans have two kinds of status, prestige and dominance. Yep. And in uh, lots of non-humans, the main way of getting status is uh, through dominance. So through controlling force and force threat, basically pushing each other's around. But in species that can do enough social learning so that they can acquire information from others, there's a kind of status where... You get it by being believed to have valuable information 
or uh, knowing how to do things or able to figure out things. And, you know, we think of these individuals as prestigious. They may have no control over force or force threat or coercion, uh, but they're still valued. People cluster around them. People try to learn from them, hang out with them, all those kinds of things, because they're high in prestige. Now, sometimes these get interwoven. Our, our institutions often interweave them. Uh, but in principle, they, they can be completely separate. And so a good leader uh, is going to be more effective if he or she has high prestige, because when they say things, they're going to be naturally persuasive. People are going to be inclined to change their opinion, to agree with the prestigious individual. And one of the things that I've uh, emphasized in some of my written work and, and some studies is um, if a prestigious individual is pro-social and cooperative, that actually causes other members of their social networks to be more pro-social and cooperative. So this applies to countries too, right? So it's often, you know, the thought of as this zero-sum game amongst countries, but if a particularly high-status country is more generous and more cooperative, that can actually cause other uh, countries to be more cooperative and generous. So, you know, there's all kinds of interesting element of uh, uh, parts of this. This is very interesting. What, what is um, coevolution? What does that mean? So I use that in a couple different ways, but the main way is gene culture coevolution. So the idea is, is that uh, culture changes our environments in a sufficiently stable way that the genes have to respond. And these are two different evolutionary inheritance systems that become intertwined over human evolution. So in The Secret of Our Success, which is my 2016 book, I make the case that uh, this cultural evolution is at least a million years old. So for over a million years old, much of our evolution was driven by a duet between genes and culture. So to give you a simple example, uh, we think fire and cooking probably started spreading over a million years ago. And if you then look at our teeth and our colons and our stomach size, they are not right for a primate of our body size. Our stomachs are too small, our colons are too short, and our teeth are tiny compared to our fellow primates. But they do make good sense if you're a primate who has cultural technologies that can process food, including cutting tools, but also fire and cooking that really breaks down proteins, uh, you know, softens things, softens root props, and then allows us to get away with these small teeth and small stomachs and small colons. When we're talking about cultural differences and, and stuff like that, are we also looking at the location of where they're based? Does that play a factor at all? Uh, well, yeah. So, so culture is definitely affected by ecological factor. So, I mean, you can't build snow houses in the tropics. So yeah. we knew that snow houses are a feature of culture. So it's sort of, sort of, there's lots of obvious ways. Um, there's now a literature on how ecology can, can affect aspects of our cultural psychology. So for example, in places that have uh, paddy rice agriculture, people tend to be uh, more collectivistic. Uh, they tend to have these uh, tight clan-like families. And then there's other things like more holistic cognition that seem to go along with that as well. So yeah, that's well, a case where the ecological uh, factor is affecting the social organization plans. And then that's affecting how people think about the world. Yeah, my idea surrounding that question was more geared towards, okay, we've got gene factors in our development and now co-evolution, so to speak, and how much of that plays a role with our environment, the environment that we are brought up with, how much of that does it impact our genes? Does it at all? Well, so we have some studies about more recent gene culture co-evolution. 
So the sweet spot seems to be uh, the agricultural revolution. So that begins spreading around 12,000 years ago. And that's just about the right amount of time so that we can actually see genetic variation in contemporary humans that we can then trace to cultural changes, in this case, the adoption of agriculture or pastoralism. So you're herding cows and camels and things like that. Uh, and so like the classic example are these genes that allow us to process lactase, lactose into adulthood and break down the enzyme so we can get the nutritional bounty from the milk. And in, in many humans, most humans, um, they're, uh, they can't do this into adulthood. So as a child, they can break it down, they can drink mom's milk, but then around five or so, that, that system shuts down and then they can't do it anymore. But starting um, around 7,000 years ago, populations began to have the ability to do this. And so populations that had dairying, so had cows and, and figured out how to get milk from cows and things, uh, but didn't develop yogurt and cheese technology. So they had to be kind of slow on that, but fast on the cows. And they got these genes for, for milk. Wow. That's interesting. So <laughs> I've wondered about this because it feels like in Western society, there's a lot of people that are kind of lactose intolerant. There's a lot of that. But if you look at another culture, say, I'm just going to throw it out here, maybe people in Italy, for example like their food grains and all that sort of stuff, they don't, it's not as bad. So are we sort of creating technologies in our cultural world in the Western society these days that are damaging our overall health more and more compared to some of these other cultures? Um, I haven't really focused on that question. There's certainly a lot of things that, uh, you know, technology in the West has, you know, solved a lot of problems and then created more problems. So a simple one is that so much of our food is, uh, you know, soft and processed and stuff. So kids grow up eating soft processed foods, but it turns out our teeth, our, our development of our teeth and jaws and gums is anticipating some tough foods that we should have to chew during childhood. So the reason why so many kids need braces now is because they're chewing baby food, basically. They're chewing really soft food. Think about you know, Big Mac or something. It's, it's, you don't have to use any pressure at all. And uh, But our body is built to... So if we gave our kids tough things to chew, many fewer kids would need braces, essentially. It's yeah. cool. I like this. <laughs> Sorry, you're, you're, you're seeing a very curious mind. So I apologize if my questions are somewhat all over the place and you're trying to read in between them <laughs> as best you can. No worries, no worries. So I'm interested in, uh, so we're talking about psychology and are there any complex human issues or human elements that you are still fascinated by that you haven't been able to really find answers to? Oh, well, I mean, uh, so much of our research is ongoing. So one of the things that uh, we study in our lab is the origins of religion. So, you know, why do people believe in uh, big, powerful, moralizing gods who live in the sky and give out afterlife? And so it's puzzling for lots of reasons, but it's particularly puzzling because most of human history, as far as best we can tell, people didn't believe in those gods. They still believed in lots of supernatural agents and ghosts and witchcraft and things like that, but they didn't be believe in these big, powerful, moralizing gods. 
So my colleagues and I have been pursuing this hypothesis that one way to get people to cooperate or to help them cooperate is to have a, a big, powerful God or, or multiple um, that is concerned about proper behavior and will punish people who don't treat their neighbors nice or avoid adultery or things like that, things that can cause disharmony in the community. And so that may have helped humans scale up societies. And we put out, you know, we did our best to compile the available evidence and we made the case, but, you know, there's a lot of room for more evidence and, and many more sort of surrounding questions. So uh, my colleague, Arnor Oren Zion, has been tackling the question of whether karma can do some of that work. And huh. the early returns say that, yeah, yeah, karma is actually another system for getting at the same problem. Where did you land on on the idea of, say, like faith and grace? Those two, to those two words and their meaning. Yeah. So faith um, is. I mean, I see. So in the secret of our success, I start with the idea that we're uh, a cultural species, and one of the first tricks you need to be a cultural species is that you get this. There's this large body of accumulated know-how about how to make tools and about how to get people to cooperate and about how to build houses and medicinal knowledge. And it's too complex for any individual coming into the world to understand all the parts. So just a simple complex tool, you know, why do you have to fire the arrowheads or why do you have to, when you're making a medicine, there's three items and then you spin around twice and then you heat it and then you put some sap in it. Why do you have to do all those steps? So you've got to put faith in the knowledge of preceding generations. But this gave people the ability to put faith in stories about invisible beings and other kinds of things like that. And if stories about invisible beings could do some work in the society by getting people to cooperate or not do stupid things, of uh, taboos on foods that are dangerous if eaten for a long time, uh, you know, th- this is a powerful cultural tool. And so I have various arguments about how cultural evolution might have harnessed those kinds of things. So how would have cultural evolution harnessed those things, you reckon? I'm curious about this. Well, so, I mean, the, the one way would be the way I described by having a God that punishes people for not sharing, for example. Yeah. And then people are more inclined to share. Or having a, a taboo that says, uh, if you don't share this food, or if you... So one system I describe in The Secret of Our Success is hunter-gatherers are known for uh, a lot of food sharing. But in some societies, the way it encourages proper food sharing is that if you're a certain class of person, like you're a middle-aged male, then you can only eat certain parts of the animal. So if you caught an animal, you could, and and if you eat the other parts, then really bad things will happen to you. So even if you catch the animal, you could sit out in the forest alone and cook up the parts that you want to eat, but then you got the rest of this carcass and nothing to do with it. So, um, you know, you take it back and you get credit for giving out all this other meat to other people and you get your portion, right? So it creates nice incentives that help everybody do the right thing. Do you think that people make better decisions when they have a religion as part of their life or do you think they do the opposite? Well, I mean, uh, uh, as an open-ended question, that's a, that's, <laughs> there's no general answer to that question. But there are things that religions will get people to do that otherwise it's hard to get them to do. Yeah. So a simple example is, is there's now quite a bit of evidence that, that daily religious devotions, so, you know, bowing to Mecca at 6 a.m. in the morning and praying and really focusing uh, can lead to a kind of um, self-regulation, a kind of self-control. It cultivates a self-control, nurtures that. Uh, and that's of course, can be then redeployed to do all kinds of useful things, you know, maintaining an exercise program. Um, 
But then, of course, religion causes people to do all kinds of crazy, stupid things, too. So you, so you can find examples of, of either. Oh, yeah. You don't have to look too far into the history books to, to find that. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's always interested me of what life looks like without religion versus life looking like with religion and what that actually does. Like, you, you, have, you, have you looked at um, much, have you done much research into cults and behavior revolving around cults? Um, I have not focused on that, but I am interested in a lot of these you know, utopian societies, which I guess could, yeah. would be considered a kind of cult, uh, and looked at the processes that lead to more successful cults. So, I mean, modern religions all started as cults, right? Uh, so when we think about cults, it just means they haven't been successful yet. And most cults don't go anywhere and just disappear in history, but some small fraction of them become the Mormons or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, and in the case of the Mormons, we actually know there was a whole proliferation of new of new utopian um, communities, which included like the Hutterites and the Mormons and the Shakers and some names. So those are names some people might recognize. But then there were a whole bunch of other ones. There were some secular ones and some religious ones. The secular ones all vanished from American history. This I'm thinking of 19th century U.S. They all vanished from history relatively quickly. The religious ones last longer. Most of them then die. But of course, the Hutterites and the Mormons, um, well, the Shakers and the last Shaker died, um, I think, in the 90s. But in any case, they didn't make it. But the other ones seem to have done quite well. Would you say that you are religious? Uh, no, I would not say that. How come? Um, I, uh, you know, I, I got interested in science and evolution and lost uh, all that religious upbringing I had. <laughs> That's fair enough, man. <laughs> it's all good. Um, I'm curious about when it comes down to, I mean, you're interested in it, in studying it and how it affects people. So there's one thing. For me in particular, the analytical mind when it comes to religion. So do you, would you say that for analytical minds, when it comes to religion, they're less likely to believe in, say, a God in the sky or a religious belief more than, say, someone that has a holistic view? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting hypothesis, which uh, I believe Will Gervais at the University of British Columbia now um, in the UK and R&R and Zion explored that. And initially when they did this study in North America, they, they um, I'll take that to be your intuition, they confirmed your intuition hmm. uh, that analytic thinkers were less, less inclined towards religion. They even did some whole priming things where they, they got people to think analytically and then they had less support for religion. But recently, Gervais did a global study, and it turns out it actually varies. It depends what society you're in. So analytic thinking is correlated with less religiosity in some populations, but other places not. That's the current state of the state of affairs. And different cultures have different religions too. So therefore, could be. analytical thinkers in that culture would, but they might they might be an analytical thinker, but because it's their part of their culture. And their upbringing, they're more likely to follow along with it. They may less. Does that make sense? They may less. Yeah, likely. I mean that kind of thing is possible. To my knowledge, uh, Will has or Will and no, anyone else hasn't run down those details, but that's a possibility. This is very interesting. So, where where can people first and foremost? The, the last couple of questions I have for you: Where can people get your book, "The Weirdest People in the World"? Well, you should be able to get it anywhere. Um, you know, usual usual sources have it. Amazon, for example. Amazing. I'll make sure everyone knows where to get that. So I wanted to 
round out this conversation with two final questions. The first one that I have for you is geared towards your book, The Weirdest People in the World. Why did you write that book in the first place? <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's a great question. So when I first arrived at, in, at the University of British Columbia, I started having a series of lunches with Steve Hine and our Norton Zion, uh, the social psychologist I mentioned earlier. And you know, we figured out that there's all this interesting psychological variation and the, the populations most studied by psychologists were unusual in a global perspective. But I, I, and that was a, that paper was a big hit. I think it had a big impact. But I was always dissatisfied with the paper because the natural question is why? What's the origin of this variation? So it basically took me eight years or whatever um, to come up with the answer. And the answer is at least the beginning of an answer is in the weirdest people in the world. Huh. So it was an effort to answer the why is there psychological? How can we explain the psychological variation that we're seeing? Was it hard for you to write the book? Uh, no, it was a great pleasure. It just took a long time. <laughs> How long are we talking? Eight years. Eight years. Well, I, I, it's a little deceptive because I spun off another book in the meantime, but I had to write that book as a kind of foundation for the next book. Initially, I had proposed them as one book, but then after I wrote the first half, like this is its own book, so we'll make it its own book. And then The Weirdest People in the World, um, which is not small, um, became its own book. Do you feel like you got everything out that you wanted to say? No, I've got, I've got another one coming. So I have a book that I'm working on tentatively called Collective Minds. And it picks up on the theme of the collective brain, which I develop in The Secret of Our Success and the, and the Weirdest People in the World, about how larger and more interconnected populations where people can freely share ideas tend to generate more innovation and more creativity and stuff like that. So any institutions or other aspects of psychology that cause people to be more trusting and more willing to share ideas is going to lead to more creativity and more innovation and whatnot. So I'm trying to consolidate all of that into a single, a single take. Very interesting. Do you know when that book's coming out? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, we'll see if it's, it doesn't exist yet. It's, it, it, it's in bits and pieces in my computer is where it exists right now. It's in the works, in the ether. Amazing. Well, right. Joseph, I, this is my final question to end everything. Uh, it is a hypothetical one. So, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for sake of argument. They've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Uh, well, that I was a good father maybe a good grandfather and um, that I got people thinking in a new way. That's it. It's a good and good send off message for people to think about. Thank you so much, Joseph, for your time today. You're for putting up with my, my questions and reading in between the lines. Uh, but I, I really enjoy this conversation. There's a lot of interesting things there for me to go and, and think about, but yeah, thank you for joining me on the Storybox podcast. All right. Good to be with you. Thanks. Hold up. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 